What I was studying the Tariyag Mitzvot, we're up to number 115. And that's the first mitzvah in the book of Vayikra. Mitzvah ma'aseh ha'ola. The mitzvah to bring a korban ola. As it says in the Pasuk, in Perik Aleph, Pasuk Gimal, im ola korbano. Now the Chinuch reminds us that he discussed already the subject of the Beit HaMikdash and his understanding of korbanot. So he goes back and says, refer to what I wrote in Mitzvah 95, Ayin Sham. Some of the laws that surround the important Mitzvah are bringing a Korban Ola. Number one, the Korban must be slaughtered in the Azara. The Korban may be slaughtered by a non-Kohen. Shechita, Keshera, Bezar. However, from the receiving of the blood and to the end of the service must be done exclusively by Kohanim. Of course, the Kohen sprinkles the blood and also skins the animal. They cut it up into pieces. Of course, when they cut the pieces, I mean, they don't cut them into small pieces. Each limb remains complete, except for the leg, where they have to actually take out the gid hanasheh. Gidan Hashem cannot be brought on the Mizbeah, while the rest of the meat, Kurban Ola, is brought on the Mizbeah. Regarding the wool that's on the head and the um, different bones and the different sinew and the horns and the hoofs, so when they're still attached to the animal, even after they skinned it, it's put on the Mizbeah. However, when they come apart, whatever comes apart, Obviously, is not put on the mizbeach. And the law is, everything is put on the mizbeach. Uh, right, as the pasuk says, uh, But as we said earlier, that if these things came off, when you were skinning the animal, so then they remain off the mizbeach. Obviously, the mizvav korban ola applies only when there's a beta mikdash, only by Kohanim, which would be males, and a male Kohen that does not bring the Ola correctly transgresses a mitzvah aseh. There's one question we could discuss over here. Why is it that we do not put the Gida Nasheh on the Mizbeach with the rest of the Korban? So the rabbis teach us a very important law. What you can eat as a Yisrael you cannot give to God to eat on his table. Pasuk says in Yechezkel, number 45, Only that is suitable to Mashke Yisrael, to eat or drink to Yisrael, can you put on the Mizbeah? So therefore, Gida Nasheh obviously is not included in Mashke Ma'akal Yisrael. The big question that they all ask then is, so how then do you put the blood on the Mizbeach? The blood clearly is not Mashke Yisrael. The answer to that is very simple. God told us to bring the blood on the Mizbeach. As a matter of fact, the blood is actually the primary part of the Korban. So where God's telling you what to put on the Mizbeach, 
we have no choice. But God did not tell us to put the Gid on the Mizbeah. All it says is to put the Yerich, to put the leg. And therefore, since we don't have an ex- explicit uh, command regarding the Gid to put on the Mizbeah, so therefore it goes back to the regular rules of Mimashke Yisrael. And therefore, since it's not Ra'ui La'achila, it's not Ra'ui La'akraba. Again, the mitzvah of Ma'ase Ola, there's different types of Ola. There's Ola that's mandatory, which would be like the Qurban Tamid, in the morning and the afternoon on a daily basis. And you also have Qurban Ola that is voluntary. For example, a person brings it as a neder or a nedava. So that would be considered also a type of ola, common denominator. They all have the same rules. As we learned in Masichet Yoma, no less than eight kohanim were needed to take the pieces of the korban ola and bring them up the ramp and put them on the mizbeach. Uh, again, we remind you, for those that are interested in the secret of the korbanot, look at mitzvah number 95. Baruch Tariag Mitzvot, and we are up to the 116th Mitzvah, the positive commandment, and that is the Mitzvah to bring a Korban that is called Minha. As the Pasuk says, V'nefesh ki takriv Korban Minha. The book of Vayikra, Perek Aleph, Pesukim Aleph, Vechule. And the inyan of the minha is basically a korban that primarily is made from flour, sometimes wheat, most of the times, and exceptional sometimes barley. The shortish of this mitzvah, why would God tell us to bring these uh, flour offerings? That this will also create a Subjugation of the Yetzirara. Why? That he sees that because of his sins, he has to basically burn his money. What is he actually doing? He's taking his money, buying a minha, and you're burning it on the Mizbeah. And therefore that'll cause him to think twice the next time that he sins. Now the Chinuch over here goes out of his way to explain to us why they call this offering a minha as opposed to a animal offering that is called a korban. So he says, because here, as opposed to a korban, you're bringing a small amount of uh, offering to God. Minha is like a matana. Similarly, he says what a person would give his friend, if he wants to appease his friend, he sends him a small souvenir or a small memento, a small little uh, 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 gift. And therefore, since in relative to korban, this is a smaller item, so therefore it's called minha, which implies something small. Furthermore, since many of the minachot, as we're going to learn now, are brought voluntarily, it's called minhat nedava, so something that is given voluntarily is called minha, as opposed to a chayubat. Minha would be like a gift. So therefore, since minha comes primarily in Edaba, that's the name it shows. Now, there are three minachot that come for the sibur, community minha. And that number one is the omer, 
that is brought on the second day of Pesach. Number two, the two loaves of bread, that's called Shte'alechem, that were brought on Shavuot. I will point out that is the only mincha that is made from hametz. And the third mincha is the lechem apanim, is the showbread that was on the table every week. That is called the mincha. So again, the three communal menachot, omer bapesach, shta lechem b'shavuot, and lechem apanim on a weekly basis. Now there are nine types of menachot of an individual. Menachat yachid. I will now list to you, as the Chinuch does, the nine different types of menachot and tell you a little about them. Number one is called menachat choteh. That's the menachat of a sinner when he is impoverished and he cannot afford to bring a korban because there's too much money. So the Torah allows him to instead bring a cheaper offering. Instead of bringing the animal, he brings a flower offering Minhat Hoteh. Minhat Kenaot. That's the Minha that the Sota brings after her husband uh, suspects her. So she has to bring this Minha. This is an exceptional Minha. It is made out of barley. Number three, Minhat Hinuch. Not to be confused with the commentator on Sefer Hinuch, but Minhat Hinuch is the Minha that every Kohen must bring on the day that he was inaugurated as a Kohen to serve. Number four, Menachat Habitin. That's the Mencha that a Kohen Gadol must bring on a daily basis. Menachat Solet. That is a Mencha that can be brought either as a neder, a vow, or nedaba as a donation. It is brought raw. It is not baked and it is not uh, fried. That is called Minhat Solit. Number six, Minhat Mahabat. That is fried in oil and it's brought either as a neder or a nedaba. Minhat Marcheshet. That also is fried. Only difference is deep fried in a deep vessel. It's brought neder or nedaba. Minhat Ma'afetanur. That is, as it sounds, that they put it in the oven and they make it like a cracker, rikikin, uh, that's brought as a neder on a daba. And then you have the second type of minhat ma'afetanur, which is the night minha, which is brought halot, where they were a little thicker. And how does the process work? A person brings flour from his house in a metal vessel. And that's the vessel that the Kohen takes, consecrates it and makes it a klisharet, and goes to the top of the Mizbeach, ultimately will hit the corner of the Mizbeach with the vessel. Then with his hands, he takes out what's called the comets of the Mincha, puts the comets on the Mizbeach, and the rest of the Mincha is eaten by the Kohanim. It's no heget this mitzvah, bizman betamikdash. Of course, it only applies to the males, because they're the Kohanim that do the service. And a Kohen that does not bring the Mincha in the way uh, that we said, the obligatory menachot, bitel mitzvat aseh, he has transgressed a positive commandment. Of course, if a person made a neder and he did not bring his mincha, he transgresses an avon of nedarim. Like we learned in the Gemara today, 
not necessarily a nyan of a minha. To over the minha means you brought it the wrong way or the Kohen did not bring it uh, at all. Amen. Tariyag Mitzvot Rabotai, we're up to 117. <clears throat> and that is the negative commandment that we're not allowed to bring as a korban, seor or devash, leavening agents or honey, or something sweet. As the Pasuk says, we just quoted it in the Tefillah, ki chol seor vechol devash lo taktiru mimenu ishel Adonai. That Pasuk is in Vayikra Perek Bet, Pasuk Yud Aleph. Now when it says Devash in the Pasuk, <clears throat> so of course regular Devash is the honey that comes from the bees. Because when the Torah writes Devash, it means Devash as well as Devash Temarim, the Devash that oozes out from the dates. However, the Halakha writes that Devash in the sense over here when the Torah is writing it, means anything sweet. So not only honey, anything sweet that comes out of the fruit. For example, we would call that sugar. Would not be allowed to be brought on the Mizbeah. Included in this lav, says the Chinuch, is that we cannot add any sweeteners to the Ketoret. Now the shortish of this mitzvah, the Chinuch, uh, before he introduces the shortish, the reason for the mitzvah, <coughs> he writes that although this Torah does not give us a reason, and it's not so easy to figure the reasons out, however, he's going to attempt just to make it a little more palatable to the reader, to the student, so we can appreciate and learn a practical lesson from the mitzvot. And then he goes on to give three reasons. The first reason, he says, is why cannot we have hametz on the mitzvah? He says because hametz represents laziness. Hametz is dough that is unworked. And when you don't work the dough, it rises. Uh, hametz is a result of inaction. And therefore, he says, we'll learn from the fact that Torah says, hametz is banned from the Mizbeach. We will learn midat zirizut, the midah of alacrity, umihirut, and to do things with speed and energy, b'ma'aseh Hashem baruchu. And uh, therefore, he says... Now, once he gives a reason, now he has to explain some of the details of where it applies to. He says, that's why when it comes to a public korban, we're allowed to use hametz. For example, when it comes to the shte'a uh, lechem on Shavuot, their hametz is okay. I, th- I thought he said we just want to ban hametz. He explains it because when it comes to something that's communal, People are zariz because everybody is mezariz each other. Everybody uh, reminds each other. So there's no laziness on a communal project because everybody is working. However, on individual, korban yahid, there's where the laziness kicks in. So then he asks on his reason and he says, if that's the case, so then we have a korban sibur that is not allowed to come from hametz and that is the lechem apanim. So if it's, a, if it's a korban sibur, we said the sibur doesn't have laziness, so why can't the lechem apanim be hametz? He said, well, because since the lechem apanim is so frequent, it comes every week, we want the people to learn the lesson that the Torah does not want hametz in its, uh, on its mezbeah. Devash, why can we not have sweet things? Shima'et ta'adam melirdof 
אחד המאכלים המתוקים. That although the Chinuch concedes that everybody has to eat, but his opinion is you should eat what's necessary. Eat in order to live, but do not live in order to eat, which means the person should not run after the uh, flavorable foods and the delicious foods and the sweet foods. He said this is the ways of the gluttons and the ba'alei ta'ava. So the fact that we ban any uh, sweets, there's no dessert on God's table. There's no sweets on God's table. So that will remind you to curb your appetite for good foods. So that's the first reason for se'or and devas. Se'or is laziness, and devas reminds you of a uh, you know, minimal menu. And we get to the second reason, he says, hametz represents arrogance. After all, the hametz rises. And he says the devas also, it, when they heat it up, so it, it, uh, it percolates, it, 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 it uh, bubbles up, or maybe it just bubbles up naturally. So therefore, these are things that are bloated, and therefore, it's reminding us, that God despises anybody with a lifted heart, with an arrogant heart. Third reason, he quotes the Ramban. And the Ramban says, an interesting reason. He says that, does not want anything on the Mizbeach unless it is natural. And uh, yeast, or seor, takes uh, flour out of its natural state. The natural state of flour and water doesn't rise that fast, but yeast, the agent of seor, takes it out of its natural way. Bore Olam doesn't want anything, it's like almost organic, this is the first case of something organic. The Bore Olam wants something natural on the Mizbeah, not something that was altered. And the seor alters, it changes things, therefore it's not a natural item. For that matter, God does not want things that are extreme. And sweet is extreme. Uh, when God created the world, he says that God created the world with a balance of midat din and midat rahamim. So God despises the extreme. Sweet would be too extreme. So therefore, Bari Olam says, do not put it on the mezbah. You need what's called mituk din Mituk alone, sweetness alone, what Olam says is... Uh, not accepted. You have to take the sweetness and uh, use it in order to mitigate the judgments. Now that we have three reasons, uh, how much of it is asur? How much seor and how much debash? What's the shiur? The chinuk says kol shihu, even a drop. How do we know? The pasuk says lo taktiru mimenu. Mimenu means koshu any of it. Now, one is only hayav if he brings it as a korban. However, if one uses hametz or devash as a fuel, meaning like wood, in order to fuel the mezbeah, he does not transgress. However, he does transgress it even via a ta'arovet, which means even if you mixed it with something else, so it's not a pure seor, a pure devash, it's mixed with something else, it's also going to be asur. Harambam and haramban. Maimonides and Nachmanides have a great mahloket on this mitzvah. The Chinuch, as we know, accepted upon himself, except in one case, which we learned already, the opinion of Harambam. And Harambam learns that these two Isurim are one love. Ki chos seor is counted as one. 
Therefore, according to Maimonides, if a Kohen came at the same time and brought Seor and Devash, he gets one set of Malkut. Ramban argues and says Seor is one lav and Devash is a separate lav, and therefore he would get two sets of Malkut if he did it at the same time. Finally, this lav is Noheg, Bizman Abayit, at the time of the Beit HaMikdash. It applies obviously to Kohanim that are male, that's only the Kohanim that serve. And if a Kohen indeed brought as a Korban or put in the Ketoret either Seor or Devash, he would be subject to Malkut from the Torah. Baruch Amen. Rabotai, we continue the study of the Taryag Mitzvot. And we are up to Mitzvah number 118. And that is a negative commandment. Shelo lehakriv Korban. And that is that any time a person, a Kohen, and the Beit HaMikdash brings a Korban, he has to make sure that the Korban is salted. As the Pasuk says in the book of Vayikra, Parashat Vayikra, Perek Bet Pasuk Yud Gimal, Velo Tashbit Melach Berit Elohecha, that you should not cease from the salt covenant. Make sure that you put salt on all the korbanot. Now this is a negative commandment. Tomorrow we're going to learn that there's also a positive commandment. But today the Chinook says, stay tuned for tomorrow as I will give you the reason. Now just I'd like to point out something. Actually the Chinook says, I explained this mitzvah already. That's the problem because he didn't explain it yet. It actually is coming forward. So you have to know something about the Sefer Yachanuk. There's just some history. That originally the way he wrote the book, he separated the mitzvot aseh of the parasha from the mitzvot lota aseh. So first he wrote the mitzvot aseh and then the lota aseh. So in the original version, he discussed already the positive commandment of putting salt. And in the original version, this came after. So he writes... Look what I wrote already. Later on, it seems that the uh, printers decided to put it in order of the mitzvot as they are written. So therefore, this mitzvah, actually, we have to stay tuned for the reason. We'll wait till tomorrow, but let's get some of the laws. It is a mitzvah to salt the korban on both sides, just like you would salt it, let's say, before you roast it. Uh, furthermore, bidi'avad, if you just put even a drop of salt, you fulfilled the mitzvah. The salt does not come from the private funds. The salt actually comes from the money of the sibur. There was three places where the salting was done. Place number one was the lishkata melach, which is actually called the office of the salt. That's where they used to salt the hides of the animal that they used to give to the kohanim. The second place that they used to salt was on the kevish. It's the ramp that goes up to the mizbeach. And there they would salt the limbs of the animal. The third place was on the top of the mizbeach. That's where they actually would add salt to the comets and to the levona and to the menachot and to olataof. Let me explain you that not only does the meat need to be salted, but anything that goes on the mizbeach needs to be salted. So when they took, for example, from the Minha 
a handful, that's considered something goes on the Mizbeah. They have to add salt to it as well. The frankincense that they took from the table on a weekly basis, that's a minha. They have to add salt to it. Or for that matter, all the menachot that went on the Mizbeah need to have salt on it as well as the olataof. Now obviously this mitzvah applies only when there's a beta megdach. It applies only to males because they are the kohanim that serve. A kohen that brings a korban without salt has transgressed the negative commandment. Tamar will learn that he also transgresses a positive commandment. But for this point, since it's a negative commandment that has an action, which means he brought a korban, he did an action, and he did not fulfill the, uh, the law, he gets malkut, he gets lashes. Now, on this uh, mitzvah, there's something very noteworthy to point out. There's a big controversy, who wrote the book Sefer HaChinuch? He wrote it anonymously. So we really don't have a, a signature of an author. So we have to deduce from the writing style, from other books, from his opinions in different places, who this author might be. Now there are many opinions that have uh, concluded that the author of the Sefer HaChinuch is one of the important Rishonim called the Ra'ah. Rabbi Aharon Alevi who also wrote another report in Sefer, Bedekabayit. Now, if that's the case, this mitzvah uh, puts that theory into question. Why? Because the Ra'ah himself in his book, Bedekabayit, says that this law of salting the korbanot applies not only to the meat that goes on the Mizbeach, but applies to the meat that the Kohanim eat as well. And that does, that's not a korban anymore. But since it's part of a korban, so their personal meat from the shilamim, for example, or the korban khatat, their meat also needs to be salted. However, in the book Sefer HaChinuch, he clearly writes that this mitzvah only applies to stuff that goes on the mizbeach. Now, if it was the same author who wrote the Bedek Abayit and who wrote the Chinuch, here we would have a contradiction. So the Benchat Chinuch and Otyun Allah points out, from here it seems at least either that the rabbi changed his mind at some point or that it's a different rabbi. And therefore, uh, that's one of the ways we would analyze to see really who wrote the book. Although the consensus is that it is the Ra'ah, but from here you see that there is a contradiction then what he said in Chinuch and what he said in the Bedekabai. From the Sefer Chinuch, it's clear that only... Things that go on the Mizbeach, like Korbanot, and not what the Kohanim eat, are subject to the rule of the salt. Baruch Amen. 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 Alright, and we're up to the 119th Mitzvah. It's a positive commandment to salt every Korban. It's in the book of Vayikra, Parashat Vayikra, Pasuk reads, Al kol korbanecha takriv melach. On all your sacrifices, you must bring with it salt. It's Vayikra chapter 2, Pasuk Yud Gimah, Pasuk 13. If you remember yesterday, we learned there's a negative commandment uh, that if you don't put salt, don't bring a korban without salt. Today we learned the positive. As well, the Chinuch finally reveals to us his reason why the Torah would want 
to have salt on the meat of the Mizbeah. So the simple explanation he says is, is again, everything that we do in the Beit HaMikdash is to create an environment in order that it will have a hashpa'a, an influence on the person that's bringing the korban, and ultimately it will bring him uh, to teshuvah. Well, when you're bringing a korban, part of the, uh, uh, the feeling is, is the, the senses that get involved with it. And we know that a piece of meat that is salted not only tastes better, says the chinuch, but even smells better. It seems the salt brings out the good uh, aroma in the meat. And therefore, we want to show that on God's table, we're not bringing something less than we would put on our table, and therefore we're giving him a choice way of the meat in order to get kapara. Furthermore, he says, Ki mikayem kol davar. That salt is a preservative. Matzil Allah have said, And salt actually saves things from decomposing and deteriorating. So he says something incredible. korban. Korban has the same element. Korban saves a person from spiritual deterioration. And it protects his soul. So just like salt preserves, the korban preserves. So again, when the person sees them putting salt in the korban, he's reminded the value of the korban that he's doing, that it's going to give him spiritual preservation. Now, the laws, like we said some of them yesterday, we'll add some more today. Everything that goes on the mezbeah gets some salt on it, except Nisachim, which is the wine libation, as well as the blood that gets sprinkled, as well as the wood that's used as the fuel. If the Kohen transgressed and he brought a korban without salt, the korban is still kasher, except for the minha. The minha that does not have salt, it's me'akev, as the pasuk says, we have a Bifirush Pasuk that says that when it comes to the Mincha, it invalidates it. Of course, this mitzvah is no heget, only at the time of the Beit HaMikdash. It applies only to males, because they're the Kohanim. A Kohen that transgresses and brings a Mincha, or a Korban without salt, not only does he transgress a negative commandment that we're mentioning uh, 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 yesterday, but he, when he gets Malkut, but he also transgresses a positive commandment. So he gets two. He transgresses an Aser and a Lota Aser. Now it's interesting, Harambam, in the Moren Nebuchim, in Peregimal Memvav, he gives an additional reason why we must put salt on our Korbanot, and he writes, it's in order to distance us from Avodah Zarah. Because it was well known, he says, that the Ovdeh Avodah Zarah would specifically not put salt on the Korbanot. And therefore, the Torah wants us not to be like the Goyim. So whatever they do, we do the opposite. Furthermore, uh, he writes that it was the way of the Ovdeh Avodah Zarah that they would take their Korbanot and smear them with honey. And that's why the Torah says... No honey on the Mizbeah, because again, 
It's a practice of Avodah Zarah. Finally, he says that the custom of the Goyim was to bring yeast and dough, bread on the Mizbayah. And that's what the Torah said. Rambam's understanding is that all these items that either we do, we must do, or we have to refrain from, is in order to do it differently than the of their Avodah Zarah. But again, you see over here today, we don't have a Beta Mikdash, but we do have a Mizbeach, which is the Jewish table, where we eat, and therefore, the Poskim bring down, the Ben Ishchai, the Ben Ari, that one should always try to have salt on the table. Not only when he's eating, but the salt should always be on the Mizbeach, and the salt also has tremendous uh, powers in order to preserve and protect the Jewish people also from the Mazikim. So again, we have no connection to it in the Beit HaMikdash level, but we still have the Shulchan, and the Pasuk says, by the Ber Elai, Zeh Shulchan, Asher Lefnei Adonai. Baruch Hanoi Le'olam, Amen V'Amen Rebi. Amen Yom Rekha Shomer. Nasoi Baruch Hashem Kodesh Lefikach. Ba'a Lem Tzotzot Shneimor Ha'pesem Ha'atzitko. Le'etorave Yadir. Abotai, we continue the study of the Tariyag Mitzvot. We are up to number 120. <coughs> and that's the Mitzvah on Bet Din <coughs> to bring a Korban if they made a faulty ruling. It's a positive commandment. <coughs> it's basically saying that if the Sanhedrin gets together and they rule on something that generally is punishable by karet, and they allow it because they're faulty ruling, and then their mistake becomes known, so then they have to bring a korban. As the Pasuk says, kol adat Yisrael yishgu davar It's in Perek Dalid, Pasuk Yud Gimal Vayikra. So now, first of all, we have to see why should the Sanhedrin be obligated to bring a korban? So the, the Hanuk explains because when there's a mistake by the great leaders, by the great rabbis, that means there's a weakness of sechel, that their intelligence is having a lapse. And therefore, that means their body, their physical, is overpowering the intellectual. And therefore, as we learned earlier, the whole secret of bringing a korban is to show that to God the physical is unimportant, and therefore we slaughter the animal 
in order to indicate that we want to mitigate, minimize the animal instinct, and we want to elevate the intellectual instinct, which the animals do not have. And therefore, since they made a mistake in the intellect, it's time to reboot the system and kill the animal as a korban in order to remind them the importance of the sikhah. And it's brought in the Beit HaMikdash, he says, which is clearly the Beit HaMikdash is the place where the intellect receives its shefa. Now I'd like to explain some of the laws that apply and what are some of the conditions for this mitzvah <coughs> to be fulfilled. Number one, the ruling has to be made by the entire Sanhedrin, which is the 71 members. Number two, the Rosh must be with them, which is the Abedin must be present. And all of the members that are sitting in this Bedin, called the Sanhedrin, have to be uh, eligible to make halakhic rulings. There are certain people, even though they're very smart, they're not eligible. For example, a Ger is not eligible to sit on the Sanhedrin. Or a, uh, let's say, a Zaken, somebody that reaches a certain old age. Furthermore, the majority of the Sanhedrin has to make the mistake, and they have to explicitly say, we rule that this is mutar. Now, it's not enough for them to rule it. The kahal has to accept it. And as long as the majority of the kahal accepts the ruling of the betin and ultimately follows it, let's give a simple example. Let's say the betin says, we're well aware that chelev is asud, that the Torah does not want us to eat certain fats of the animal, but this piece over here is not considered chelev, therefore we're ruling, you can eat it. And they make that ruling, and the people say, well, if the Sanhedrin say it's okay, they must know, and therefore they follow it as well. Which means, it has to be in that case, as opposed to, let's say, the people say, we know the rabbis botched it, and we know they're wrong, but you know what? If they're giving us the leniency, we're using it anyway. That's not a case. The case has to be that the people followed it because they relied on the ruling of the Betin, assuming that they're correct. Now, as I said before, we're not talking about where the Sanhedrin is uprooting a law from the Torah. As I said, they didn't say that Botai, there's no such thing as Chalev. That they can't do. And this law doesn't apply. We're talking about where they say there is Chalev. It's just that this item here is not. Exactly. Furthermore, when the Betin finds out that they made the mistake, they have to know exactly the ruling that they made the error on. It's not enough to say, yeah, yeah, we, we have a vague memory of some ruling that we made. They have to know exactly the case that they're talking about. And it's not that the Sanhedrin brings the Korban. The Korban is brought by every tribe. Every Shevet of Klal Yisrael means 12 Korbanot have to be brought in order to atone for this mistake of the Bedin. So for example, let's say the Bedin ruled on Avodah Zarah. They said, this service over here is not considered idolatry. And they were making, made a mistake. Well, Clyde said, oh, that's not considered idolatry. So everybody went and started to do that uh, practice. And then it was known to Sanhedrin that they made a mistake. So in Avodah Zarah, each tribe must bring a par. That means they have to bring 12 parim. Uh, that's for Olah. And they must bring 12 goats. That's the Avodah Zarah Korban. Twelve goats, Irim, the Korban Hatat. 
So in that case, the pot, people make a mistake, they think it's one pot. It's not one pot. It's 12 parim, it's one each. And then in Abu Dazara will be an additional 12 si'irim. Of course, if it was another case of karet, not Abu Dazara, so then it would just be 12 parim. Obviously, it's noheget, this mitzvah only applies in the times of the Beit HaMikdash. That's when the Sanhedrin used to sit. I should be point, point out that it's only talking about when the Sanhedrin is sitting in their offices, in the Shkata Gazit, on the Temple Mount, which means that 40 years before the destruction of the Temple, this law did not apply. Because as we learned in the Gemara, that 40 years before the destruction, the Sanhedrin actually was exiled from their offices. So even if they had made a mistake at that point, since it was not coming from the Shkata Gazit, the law of Pari Alem Davash Sibur would not apply. Rabotai, we continue the study of the Tariag Mitzvot. And today we are up to Mitzvah number 121. And that's the positive commandment to bring a Korban Hatat for an individual. As the Pasuk says in Perek Dalid, Pasuk Habzayin, Ve'im nefesh ahat techeta b'shkaga me'ama'ares v'chuleh. That's referring to if uh, somebody committed a sin, <coughs> a private sin, so he has to bring a korban hatat if he committed the sin b'shogeg. And this is called hatat kibu'ah, which means it is fixed. It does not fluctuate based on the person's income. No matter what he is, whether he is wealthy, or if he's poor, <clears throat> he still brings the same korban. Now, what type of sin must he commit in order to be subject to bring a korban hatat? It's a sin that if he would have done it on purpose, bemezid, he would be hayav karet. Furthermore, it only applies to negative commandments, says, and it has to be a lav Bo So those are the three conditions in order to be Hayab or Korban Hatat Kibu'ah. I repeat, Asab Shogeg, he did it by mistake on something that if he would do on purpose, be Hayab Karet. It's a negative commandment and it has a Ma'aseh. Based on that, if a person does not bring Korban Pesach Beshogeg, he does not bring a korban hatat, that even though it's punishable by karet, korban pesah is a positive commandment, and therefore not included in the rules. Furthermore, if somebody does not take a brit milah, although it's punishable by karet, if he did it by mistake, Meshuggah would not bring a korban hatat, because it's not a negative commandment. Again, it is a positive commandment. Furthermore, the megadef, Megadef is somebody that commits blasphemy. Now, even though it's punishable by karet, and even though it's a negative commandment, it does not have an action, because that is done verbally. And therefore, it's a lav, but en bo ma'aseh. Now, there are two exceptions in the Torah of a lotaseh that's punishable by karet, that has a ma'aseh, and does not bring a korban hatat kivu'ah, but instead brings a olev yored. Olev yored means it fluctuates based on the person who's bringing its income. A rich man brings the animal, 
poor guy scales it down. What are the two exceptions? A impure person that ate something that was Kodesh, or a Tameh person that entered the Mikdash. These are the two exceptions where a Korban Olevi Yored is brought. The Chinuch counts for us 43 Averot in the Torah that are subject to a Hatat Kivu'ah. Most of them are regarding Arayot, immorality, the forbidden relations. Now on this subject, it's worthy just to bring to your attention, Abotai, that we've heard over the years that there is a concept that in the Bedin Shel Ma'la, in the heavenly court, they don't punish uh, until a person is 20. And it sounds like they're saying that until 20, a person will not be Hayav Karet, because Karet is a punishment that is Bideshamayim. What is the real uh, story regarding that principle that we've heard that up to 20, there is no punishment Bideshamayim? There was a great rabbi called the Hacham Tzibi, in his Teshuvot in Siman Memtet, he says to come along and say that a person is not going to be Hayab, Karet, or the things that he does less than 20. He says it does not make some sense. Which is the Torah forbade something. And the Torah gave a punishment on something. And not only that, but people are less than 20, we kill them. If a person was mehalel shabbat b'mezid, they throw him off a building, they give him sekilah. So therefore, if already we're punishing the uh, person under 20 with physical deaths, why should mitabi deshamayim be any different? Furthermore, the hatam sofer in his teshuvot, as well as the nodabi huda in madura tanina in yoredeakuf samich dalid, both write that it's not mistaber to say that somebody that commits a sin is not going to be punishable, punished uh, because he's less than 20. He says, otherwise, says the Rodabi the world will be hefker. The world will be helter-skelter. Because every kid that's under 20 will commit all these crimes that are punishable. And says, ah, I'm off the hook. I'm not going to get punished because I'm less than 20. It cannot be. So the conclusion, they come along and they say is that what it means that they don't give karet is, is they suspend it. They wait until he's 20, which means they give him a chance to make teshuvah. That since normally a person commits a crime, I have karet on the spot. Mashiach is somebody less than 20. It's a delayed reaction. I guess because of his young age, so they give him a little reprieve. But now that they're going to get him off the hook, they're just giving him a chance to atone and to rectify it and to make teshuvah. But once he gets to the age of 20... All those back karets go back on the person. So again, uh, it does not affect a korban hatat. We don't think for a second that if somebody commits a sin when he's 18 years old, does not have to bring a korban hatat. Because you might say, well, he's not hayaf karet, therefore he doesn't bring a hatat. That, that, that's regardless he's going to have to bring a korban hatat because it's a sin that's punishable by karet. We're not referring to is the person necessarily it goes on the style of sin. And since this sin is a karet sin, whether the minor less than 20 is going to get it or not at this point, we just discussed it. But that's not going to impact what we're discussing here today. 
even an 18-year-old or a 19-year-old that commits one of these lotases, indeed he will have to bring a hatat kivu'ah. All right, the botai tariyag mitzvot. We're up to one twenty-two. Positive commandment, and that's the mitzvah of edut, the mitzvah to testify as a witness, as is written in Parashat Vayikra, vehu ed oraa oyada. So there in Pereke Pasuk Aleph, the Torah says that if a person sees something, he has to say something. And if he doesn't, so then already he transgresses this positive commandment. Now there is a difference, fundamental difference, between when it comes to monetary cases and capital punishment cases. When it comes to Dinei Mamonot, you don't need to step forward and testify unless they summon you to court to testify. One of the litigants comes along and says, I have witnesses that he owes me the money. So Bedim will summon the witness. You don't have to come on your own. However, when it comes to capital punishment cases, for example, you witness the crime of murder. There you must come on your own to Bedim and tell the Bedim what you saw. The obvious reason is because there's danger now. If people are not gonna come to testify, is going to have uh, uh, criminals in the street. And therefore, if he doesn't come on his own and testify, he transgresses the sin. Now let's review, Rabotai, some of the details of the mitzvah as related to us by the Sefer HaChinuch. First of all, he says, not everybody is obligated to go to Betin and testify. For example, if let's say the witness was Hakam Gadol, a great rabbi, scholar, and the Betin is beneath his... Uh, you know, intellectual level, let's say. He does not have to go and testify. It's not kavod Torah. And therefore, the mitzvah aseh of kavod Torah overrides the positive commandment of going to be a witness. Another person, for example, the Kohen Gadol, because of his stature, is not obligated to go testify only if his testimony is nogeya to the king. As we're going to see, it's only referring to Malcheh David. Thirdly, Malchei Yisrael, Jewish kings, because of a story that's related in the Gemara, the rabbis established, they do not testify and they are not testified against. However, Malchut Bet David, if a king is from the Davidic dynasty, he can testify and they can testify against him. We do not uh, disqualify witnesses because of friendship which means even though the witness might be a friend of the person he's testifying for or against, or he's an enemy, that does not pasu a posel edim, because we follow the pasuk that says, she'erit Yisrael lo ya'asu avla. The Jewish people are not suspected for lying because of relationship, because of a friendship. However, it should be pointed out, a judge would be pasul in that case because a judge would not be able to see the case clearly because of his connection one way or the other to the litigants. Number f- the next halakha is a fantastic mahloket between harambam and ramban regarding a star that
that has witnesses attached to it. Everybody agrees that Torah law witnesses are verbal witnesses, physical witnesses that come and testify. Question is, the question is, if you have a shtar, a shtar is a document between Reuven and Shimon, and they have it signed, whatever took place, by two witnesses. And now they want to use that star as testimony that the event happened. Reuven owes Shimon money. There's two witnesses signed. The question is, what is the status of those two witnesses that are not physical anymore? We're relying on a signature on a paper. Harambam says, indeed, that type of testimony of a star is the Rabbanan. The rabbis established it because it's going to be hard the people to lend money, are they going to find their witnesses? No one's going to borrow money. If they, are you going to produce witnesses that there was a loan? The witnesses are going to disappear one day. Not, so they can say, you know what? I'm not trusting it. But if you let them sign papers, so they can hold on to the document, and that can be their proof. It was a rabbinical enactment. The Namban categorically argues on Harambam, and he says, indeed, a deem that are signed on a shtar, that is also a dut de oraita. Another law that we have is double jeopardy. Once a, a witness testifies, they cannot come along now and recant their testimony and say, well, you know, we said it because it is, but now we want to say something else. Once their testimony is accepted in Bedin, it's accepted. Now the last law that we have to discuss over here is Hakamim, when they get a shtar that's presented in front of them, they rely on the witnesses that are signed. So long as there's no suspicion that the signatures were forged. Now we will discuss for a minute how do you establish that the signatures are not forged. So we have over here five different ways. Easiest way, or I shouldn't say the easiest way, but the obvious way would be if you get two witnesses that come along and can testify that they know these signatures and they know that they're not forged. Two witnesses per signature. So that's it. Nothing more than two witnesses. Nothing stronger than that. Another way would be the judges themselves recognize the signatures. Two other judges. Therefore, they're able to establish the shtar. Or for that matter, let's say the signatories themselves show up and they say, that's our signature. That's enough. Clearly, we believe them. Or, for example, we compare signatures from other documents. We find their documents on other legal shtarot, and we bring it to the court. We say, here, look at the way he signed over here. Look at the way he signed over here. And we can prove it from other documents that are legal. Or, for example, a ketubah that they signed. We can, testif- we can testify or prove the witness's veracity from there. Furthermore, the Gemara is lenient. We are allowed to use the testimony of a relative to join him with another witness in order to verify signatures. And Botai, this halakha of testimony applies at all places, in all times. Even today, we have Bedin. It applies to males, but not to ladies. The Hinuch writes, something that might not sound so politically correct in today's society, but he says, 
שאין נשים בתורת עדות לקלות דעתם. Because the ladies are not in the parasha of עדות, because of what he calls קלות דעתם. I would like to explain it. Does not mean, God forbid, that the ladies lack intellect or lack the ability to see an event and to be precise in the way they are going to uh, say over and testify. That does not mean kalut da'atam. What I believe it means is that they're easily uh, persuaded and they're easily intimidated. Which means when witnesses come to Bedin, they must go through a series of bedikot and hakirot. The court grills them to make sure that they are telling the truth, and they also get cross-examined by the other side. And we're worried that the lady, either because she's easily persuasive or she gets intimidated from the high pressure, and therefore she might just say, oh, maybe that's not what I saw, maybe not. That doesn't mean all ladies are like that. But since that is a teva, achamim, or the Torah, put them outside of the pale of testimony. Law says if the witness should have gone to Betin and he didn't, he was mevatel a mitzvat aseh. So it's interesting, the Chinuch is learning that even though it says in the Pasuk, im lo yagid venasa avono, sounds like it's a negative, but it says no. It's a positive commandment that's just telling you the consequence. And therefore, he says on Shogadol, why? Why if people don't go to court and testify is the punishment not only gadol, he says gadol me'od. Why? He says, Ki Because society is established when there's a strong court system and there's law and order and there's justice. And if people are not going to come testify, so then already the courts cannot enforce the law on their own. And therefore it breaks the fabric of society. The Hainuk goes on then to say that there's another facet of this law, if the witness will swear falsely that he didn't know testimony, and then later on he admits that he did know testimony, then already he has to bring a special korban, and that korban is a rare korban in the sense that it's brought even if he did it on purpose. Normally you bring korban hatat on a shogeg, but this korban would be brought even if he was mezid again. The 122nd mitzvah, the mitzvah to be a ed. Baruch Rabotai, we're doing the Taryag mitzvot. And we're up to 124. That's a negative commandment. Shelo lehabdil harosh behata ta'of. That's talking about when a poor man needs to bring a korban hatat. Of course, as we learned, he, sometimes he cannot afford to bring an animal, so he brings a bird. So the law is that after they make the melika, which we'll discuss what melika is in a minute, they do not detach the head of the bird from the neck. Lo yevdil. The head must remain attached. As it says in the pasuk, umalak et rosho mimul orpo lo yevdil that they make milika from behind the neck and they do not separate the head from the body. That's in Perek He, Pasuk Het, Parashat Vayikra. 
Now let's just get some terminology. When it comes to the bird, they do not make a conventional shechita. Conventional shechita is from the neck. Do the simanim. However, we do melika. That the Kohen takes his nail and he thrusts it the back of the animal, the back of the bird, I should say, by his, by the spine, by the, the back of the neck, actually, and he breaks the bone, and his nail goes all the way through to the front of the bird, and breaks the siman, and breaks the sign, cuts the sign from the back, uh, or the majority of it. Of course, he has to make sure that when he's doing it, that it doesn't go too deep, that it'll cause the head to come off. Again, the Pasuk says, no, you have deal. Now the question we can ask is, why did the Torah not uh, allow a conventional shechita by a bird? Why would the Torah tell us you need to do milika? And the Hinu gives a very interesting reason. So he says, listen, who brings the bird? The Ani. And the Ani, he doesn't have any money. And he needs to go back to work because he's a poor guy. So therefore, we don't want to take his time. And if you had to go find a knife and go check the knife and then go make the regular shaita, and he doesn't have too much time. He's got to go back to work and make some panasa. Uh, so therefore, he comes along and he says that even when the queen's holding the bird, instead of having to bend the neck and go from that, it's easier just to go faster from the back. Basically, according to the Chinuch, it's to expedite it so the Ani's time will not be wasted. Furthermore, he then says that B'nai Yisrael are compared to a dove, which is the bird that the Ani brings. And we slaughter it by the back of the neck to remind us, don't be stubborn, because the Jews are called the stiff-necked people. So we break the back of the neck in order to say that you break your stubbornness, especially when that akshanut causes you to rebel against God. Furthermore, he says, why not separate the head? So he writes, and I quote, the isur of dalatarosh menaguf davar raui lehidur korban. It's nicer to have the head attached, and therefore, poor guy, it's enough that he has to bring a bird. So at least let's bring it in the nicest way possible. Let it look whole. So therefore, it looks like he's giving something significant. Like he says, Dai lo It's enough that he's poor. En lanu We shouldn't have to add insult to injury. So therefore, leave the head on. Let it be a little nicer sacrifice. The Hinuch reminds us that making milika zu me'avodot kashot was one of the hardest services in the Beit HaMikdash. The way the Kohen had to hold the bird, especially between his fingers, and get the thumb exactly in the right spot, the nail. Also, while other korbanot hatat can only be slaughtered in a certain location by the Mizbeach, there is no specific location that Milika can be done. The Hinuch again says, You don't want to delay and have to go to a certain spot. Just get it done. Get it done so the Ani can go back to work. That is a famous derash on this from Rav Meir Shapiro, Alav Shalom. And he asks, Al Pia Musar, when the Ani brings a hatat, 
The Torah says, Hatataof lo yevdil. We do not separate the head. However, Olataof yevdil. When they bring the korban Ola, let's say, so then the law is like a regular korban. They split the head off. So he says, why Hatataof lo yevdil? The Olataof yevdil. And he says a tremendous musad. As we learned earlier, the Jewish people are compared to a dove. And sometimes it happens that we see a Jew that will commit a sin, God forbid, and his name is publicized in the papers, and we know it's Chilul Hashem, he might commit some sort of crime. But what do the Guim say? The Guim come along and say, they're all the same. All the Jews are criminals. When it comes to Hatata of, when it comes to the sin of the of, lo yevdil. They don't separate. They don't separate between Jew and Jew. They're all guilty. However, you have other times that Jews will do great things. They will do heroic things. They'll make all sorts of breakthroughs in the different sciences and medicine. That's olata of. And what do the, what do the goyim say? Eh, he's an exception. Yevdil. He's separate from everybody else. And therefore, it's a rarity. It's, a, it's an exception to the rule. Hatata of. When it comes to the sins of Klai Yisrael, lo yevdil, they put us in the same boat. All Jews are guilty. They're all the same. When it comes to Olata of, yevdil. Eh, he's different. He was the exception. In any event, the Torah says that this, Hinuch writes that this law applies only by the Beit HaMikdash, Bizman Abayit, and by Kohanim. But Hidush over is not only Kohanim. Ubchol Adam. That means anybody that comes after the Kohen's milika and separates the head, transgresses this avon. Not only the Kohen, and the punishment of doing this is a lav, and it's a lot and therefore the punishment will be malkut. Baruch Rabotai, we're doing the Taryag Mitzvot. And we're up to 124. That's a negative commandment. שלא להבדיל הראש בחטא תעוף. That's talking about when a poor man needs to bring a korban hatat. Of course, as we learned, sometimes he cannot afford to bring an animal, so he brings a bird. So the law is that after they make the melika, which we'll discuss what melika is in a minute, they do not detach the head of the bird from the neck. לא יבדיל. The head must remain attached. As it says in the Pasuk, Umalak et Rosho, Mimul Orpo, Lo Yevdil. That they make Melika from behind the neck and they do not separate the head from the body. That's in Perek He, Pasuk Het, Parashat Vayikra. Now let's just get some terminology. When it comes to the bird, they do not make a conventional shahita. Conventional shahita is from the neck. Do the simanim. However, we do melika. That the Kohen takes his nail and he thrusts it, the back of the animal, the back of the bird, I should say, by, his, by the spine, by the, the back of the neck, actually. And he breaks the bone and his nail goes all the way through to the front of the bird and breaks the siman and breaks the sign, cuts the sign from the back, uh, or the majority of it. Of course, 
he has to make sure that when he's doing it, that it doesn't go too deep, that it'll cause the head to come off. Again, the Pasuk says, Lo Yavdir. Now the question we can ask is, why did the Torah not uh, allow a conventional shechita by a bird? Why would the Torah tell us you need to do milika? And the Hinu gives a very interesting reason. So he says, listen, who brings the bird? The Ani. And the Ani, he doesn't have any money, and he needs to go back to work because he's a poor guy. So therefore, we don't want to take his time. And if you had to go find a knife and go check the knife and then go make the regular shahita, Ani doesn't have too much time. He's got to go back to work and make some uh, panasa. So therefore, he comes along and he says that even when the quid's holding the bird, instead of having to bend the neck and go from that, it's easier just to go faster from the back. Basically, according to the Chinuch, it's to expedite it so the Ani's time will not be wasted. Furthermore, he then says that B'nai Yisrael are compared to a dove, which is the bird that the Ani brings. And we slaughter it by the back of the neck to remind us, don't be stubborn, because the Jews are called the stiff-necked people. So we break the back of the neck in order to say that you break your stubbornness, especially when that akshanut causes you to rebel against God. Furthermore, he says, why not separate the head? So he writes, and I quote, the isur of dalatarosh menaguf davar raui lehidur korban. It's nicer to have the head attached, and therefore, poor guy, it's enough that he has to bring a bird. So at least let's bring it in the nicest way possible. Let it look whole. So therefore, it looks like he's giving something significant. Like he says, Dai lo It's enough that he's poor. En lanu lehosif bedaluto. We shouldn't have to add insult to injury. So therefore, leave the head on. Let it be a little nicer sacrifice. The Hinuch reminds us that making milika zu me'avodot kashot was one of the hardest services in the Beit HaMikdash. The way the Kohen had to hold the bird, especially between his fingers, and get the thumb exactly in the right spot, the nail. Also, while other korbanot hatat can only be slaughtered in a certain location by the Mizbeach, there is no specific location that milika can be done. The Hinuch again says, you don't want to delay and have to go to a certain spot. Just get it done. Get it done so the Ani can go back to work. That is a famous derash on this from Rav Meir Shapiro, and he asks, Musar, when the Ani brings a hatat, the Torah says, of uh, We do not separate the head. However, of Yavdil. When they bring the korban olah, let's say, so then the law is like a regular korban. They split the head off. So he says, why hatata of lo yavdil, the olata of yavdil. And he says a tremendous musad. As we learned earlier, the Jewish people are compared to a dove. And sometimes it happens that we see a Jew that will commit a sin, God forbid. 
and his name is publicized in the papers, and we know it's Chilul Hashem, he might commit some sort of crime. But what do the Goyim say? The Goyim come along and say, they're all the same. All the Jews are criminals. When it comes to Hatata of, when it comes to the sin of the of, lo yevdil. They don't separate. They don't separate between Jew and Jew. They're all guilty. However, you have other times that Jews will do great things. They will do heroic things. They'll make all sorts of breakthroughs in the different sciences and medicine. That's olata of. And what do the, what do the goyim say? Eh, he's an exception. Yevdil. He's separate from everybody else. And therefore, it's a rarity. It's, a, it's an exception to the rule. Hatata of. When it comes to the sins of Klai Yisrael, lo yevdil. They put us in the same boat. All Jews are guilty. They're all the same. When it comes to olata of, yevdil. Eh, he's different. He was the exception. In any event, the Torah says that this, Hinuch writes that this law applies only by the Beit HaMikdash, and by Kohanim, but Hidush is not only Kohanim, Ubchol Adam, that means anybody that comes after the Kohen's Milika and separates the head, transgresses this Avon, not only the Kohen, and the punishment of doing this is a lab, and it's a lot of Sheshesh Maaseh, and therefore the punishment will be Malkut. Baruch Adonai Olam. Amen. Amen. Rabbi we're continuing our study of the Taryag Mitzvot. And we are up to Mitzvah number 125. It's a negative commandment. <clears throat> and that is that we are not allowed to place olive oil, Shemin Zayit, oil in the Minha of the sinner. Which means... When you have a poor person that's bringing a minha, a meal offering, a flower offering, as a result of a sin that he did, that's called minhat hoteh shel ani. So the law is that that uh, offering comes without oil. As the pasuk says in Parashat Vayikra, Pereke Pasuk Yud Alef, lo yasim aleha shemen. <clears throat> and what's the reason why? Does that uh, minha specifically come without oil? So the Hinuch writes, the Fisha Shemen Ramuz Le-Godla, which means the oil represents things of importance and uh, you know, things that are significance. And how do we know that the oil is considered you know, elevated uh, uh, mashkim, an elevated uh, liquid or beverage? Because we know if you mix it with anything else, the oil always floats to the top. And that's not only a, you know, a scientific uh, item, but it tells you about the uh, status of the oil, that it has uh, <clears throat> a very, very elevated status. And the Hanukh Slashon is, After all, we learned already that it is with the oil that they anoint kings and kohanim. So therefore, this is a minhav, a sinner. And the point that we want to drill into the head of the sinner is that he should be modest or humble. And therefore, there's no room for oil. Obviously, it's the ga'ava that brought him to the sin. So therefore, by keeping away from the oil, that will bring into him the concept of humility. Furthermore, uh, the Hinuch writes, ta'ani, it's mercy for the poor person. You know, it's enough. He barely can afford the flour for the minha. 
and therefore to put an extra tax on him that he has to put the oil, so the Torah has mercy not to overburden the Ani. Now, the Bechinuch um, writes that this mitzvah applies obviously only when the Beit HaMikdash was around, and it implies to male Kohanim, because again, they do the service, and then he writes like this, any Kohen that transgresses and puts oil into the Minha of the Ani gets Malkut. Now, the problem is not that you get Malkut, it's a lab, it's a negative commandment, and it has a Maaseh. The question that the Minhat Chinuch asks in Otet is why only the Kohen gets the lav. And let's say a non-Kohen added oil to the Minhav Da'ani. After all, it's not necessary for a Kohen, generally speaking, to add oil to the Minhav. Even a Zad, even a non-Kohen could add oil to a Minhav if it's necessary. The Kohen only uh, has to serve from the Kemitzah and forward. So therefore, why wouldn't a Yisrael, for example, get the lav if he adds oil to the minha of the Choteh? That's the Minhat Chinuk's question on the Chinuk. Why does he say that this is a lav exclusively to Kohanim? So I saw a nice answer to this question based on the Shitab the Rambam in Maaseh Korbanot, Perik Yudbet, Halakachet. Harambam's Lashon is like this. Natan Shemin al Minhat Choteh Vehikriv. The Rambam adds a language here. He says, not only did you put the oil on the Minha, but then the Minha was actually sacrificed. They brought it like that <coughs> on the Mizbeah. So, what do you see from Harambam? Harambam sounds like that to get Malkut, it's not enough just to put it on the Minha. But ultimately, it has to be sacrificed. So we could say like this, since who's the one that's exclusively in charge of sacrificing Menachot? Not in Israel, a Kohen. So therefore, could be the Chinook agrees with the Rambam that only the one that can be Makriv is going to be the one that's going to be Hayab. So therefore, if Israel puts the oil, but he can never be Makriv. So therefore, he cannot transgress. But a Kohen, who is the one that's makriv the minha, so therefore he's going to be over and get malkut when he poured the oil on, and then ultimately it was brought. They are the uh, ones that are in charge of being makriv the minha. So that could be a reconciliation. Again, Rabotai, although the law doesn't apply today, the logic of the law applies. Again, two lessons that are learned from this. Number one, that the Torah wants to minimize the ga'ava, and promote humility, because Ka'aba is the root of sin. No oil in the sinner's minha. And number two, that if a person is uh, economically strapped, we have to have mercy on him and not to put an extra tax on him. Even something so insignificant as some oil, the Torah says, forget it, don't bring the oil, in order not to be matriach, like the Chinuch Lashon is, yoter midai. Tariyag Metzvot, and we're up to 126. And that is a negative commandment that we're not allowed to put levona, which is frankincense, on the minha of the choteh. That means if there's a poor person and he has an obligation to bring a minha because he cannot afford the korban, so he brings flour. So we're not allowed to add to that mixture of flour levona.
אז הפסוק says in Vayikra, פרק ה', פסוק י"א, ולא ייתן עליה לבונה. Now the Mishnah says that when we learned yesterday's mitzvah, was that, that you're not allowed to add oil as well. So there's two things that are forbidden to add to the mincha of the choteh, oil and lebona. And the Mishnah says in uh, in Hulin, in Minachot, v'chayav al ha-shemen b'fnei atzmo v'al ha-lebona b'fnei atzma. That means it's two separate lavin. which sounds like that if a person put shemen on the mincha and lebona on the mincha, he gets two sets of malkuyot. And based on this, we have a tremendous mahloket amongst the Rishonim. <coughs> Rashi and Tosafot on the Gemara Menachot, page 60, says that one would be hayav if he added lebona to the mincha, even after he put the oil. That means he put oil first. And after he put the oil, he added lebona. Now what's the Hadush of Rashi and Tosfot? The Hadush is that even though once he put the oil, the mincha is pasul. So therefore you might have thought once the mincha is pasul, finished, it's invalid. So therefore, what's the inyan of the lebona? It's not a mincha anymore. Kamash ma'alan? No, it's two separate isudin. And even if you put one after the other on the same mincha, The Benu Tam argues on this. And he says exactly what we just said. Since the Minha becomes Pasul, once you add the Shemen, if you add Levona to that same Minha, you will not be Hayab on the Levona. Oh, but the Mishnah says, So we can explain it simply. It's two different Minachot. You put Shemen on one Minha, and you put Levona on a different one. Or we can explain that the Hadush of the Mishnah is that you might have thought that you only Hayab until you do both together. Kamash Ma'ala know that you Hayab even if you did them one at a time. Now there was a great rabbi called the Safnat Pa'anaya, the Rekach of a rabbi, and he made a phenomenal observation in the language of Harambam, in his Sefer HaMitzvot. See, Maimonides also has a count of the Mitzvot, like the Sefer HaHinuch. Actually, the Sefer HaHinuch followed the Rambam. And Maimonides talks about these two mitzvot in number 102 and 103. He listed them as the 102nd negative commandment, not to put oil on the mincha, and the 103rd negative commandment, not to put levona. But listen to his language, and based on his language, the Rukka Chava makes a tremendous chedush. He says, Lokin al netinat ha-shemen. that a person gets malkut when he puts the shaman on the uh, mincha. When he discussed the levona, however, he writes, shehuzarnu shelo lehakriv mincha im levona. Why when it came to levona, my mind is used the language shelo lehakriv, not to sacrifice it. When it came to shaman, it just said, shelo yiten. So the safnat paneah says a big hadush. That when it comes to To levona, you won't be hayab until you actually bring the mincha on the mezbayah. Why? Why by the oil you hayab immediately? He says, I'll tell you the difference. Because once you put the oil on the mincha, you reach the point of no return. You can't undo it. 
the oil gets absorbed into the minha, and therefore you hayav on the spot. When you put the levona on top of the minha, it's dry. You can take the pieces out, and therefore it can still be undone. So one is not going to be hayav until they actually bring it as a korban. And therefore Hanambam was very miduyak. When he came to Shem and he said, Shelo yiten. When he came to Levona and said, Shelo yakriv. Because the point of no return by Levona is only after the Haklabah. The reason for this mitzvah is the same reason as we said yesterday. Levona is something that is hashuv. And at the time that a person is making atonement for a sin, it's not worthy to put something that is significant on the end of Minhab. We want to remind the uh, poor person uh, that Ga'ava brought him to sin and therefore the minha has to be very austere and very, very simple without any fancy ingredients. And secondly, we said that God has mercy on the Ani. It's enough that he's a poor guy. Now you tell me he has to add this expensive ingredient called the Vona, so it is insult to injury. So therefore they tell him, just mechaped yourself, like the, the, the rabbi said yesterday, the me'at kemah, with a small amount of flour. Baruch Sefer HaChinuk Rabotai, Tariyag Mitzvot, we're up to 127. And that's the mitzvah if somebody benefited from Hekdesh, from things that are holy, and he used it for his personal uh, pleasure, besides the fact that he has to bring a korban, which is called Asham Me'ilot, he also has to pay back the principle of what he stole, or what he benefited from. But today's mitzvah is a positive commandment that says he must add one-fifth above the principle. And that is uh, based on a pasuk in Vayikra, in Perek He, pasuk Tetzayin that says, V'hamishito Yosef Alav. And he will have to add one-fifth. Now the Shoresh, the root of this mitzvah, it's basically to cause a fear and a deterrent that people should not fool around and use Hekdesh for their personal use. When they know that they're going to have to pay back not only the principal, but they're going to have to add uh, one-fifth more. Now I'd like to discuss some of the details of this mitzvah as brought down by the Sefer HaChinuch himself. First case he brings down is that this law only applies when a person makes me'ilah, meaning he uses hektesh, b'shogeg. B'shogeg means by mistake. So therefore the rule would be like this. If let's say one person made me'ilah b'shogeg, and then another guy right after him also made me'ilah. That's called mo'el, Ahar Mo'el. The second guy is Patur. Why? Because once the first guy made Me'ilah, the Kiddushah goes off the item. Once the Kiddushah goes off the item, it's not holy anymore. So therefore the second guy is not subject. Now, the second halakha that he says over here is, let's say the first guy was Mo'el Mezid, that he did it on purpose. And the second guy was Mo'el Bishogeg. Well, the second guy is going to be Hayav, Kurban Me'ilah, for the simple reason. When a guy is Mo'el B'Mezid, the Kiddushah does not go off. And therefore the second guy that was Mo'el B'Shogeg is going to be Hayav. Now it should be pointed out that there are exceptions where there is Mo'el Ahar Mo'el. And that is 
when the actual item is intrinsic kedusha. It's called kedusha taguf. On things that are intrinsically kedusha, the kedusha does not go off. For example, a behema of korban or klisharet, which is a holy vessel that's used in the Beit Hamikdash. The minimum amount of benefit for this isud is shaveh peruta. It has to be at least a peruta's worth where he benefited. Now, there's an interesting case. Let's say somebody came, even a non-kohen, and ate from the meat of a korban hatat, or the meat of a korban asham, after the blood was sprinkled. Or let's say he ate from the shtehalechem, the two breads that they bring on Shavuot, after the korban was brought. Now, he's really not allowed to eat these items. He's a zar. However, there is no me'ilah in this case. Why? Since it's permissible, adam. since kohanim are allowed to eat it, therefore, there's a nehene. It's not considered consecrated item to God, because you see kohanim are allowed to eat it. So even though he was not allowed to eat it, it's not subject to me'ilah. The hadush over is even if the item became pasul, that even Kohanim cannot eat it, doesn't matter. Since there was a Sha'at Heter, since at one moment Kohanim were allowed to eat it, it's not considered consecrated to God, therefore there is no law of Me'ilah. Last but not least, this is a halakha that we see all over the place. The way the Torah calculates a fifth is not the way we would calculate the fifth. It's called Hamishit Lebar. I'll explain it to you. Let's say <clears throat> you want to do a fifth of $100. The way we, do, we would do it is, you divide 100 into 5. And therefore, it's 20 bucks. That would be the conventional way of doing it. But the Torah actually does it a different way. The way the Torah calculates the fifth is, it takes the 100 and divides it into 4 parts. And if you divide it into 4 parts, it's 25. And then they add that part to the full number. So now you have 125. So therefore 25 is one-fifth of the entire number of 125. So therefore the fifth is really a quarter, which means it's not 20 bucks, you'd have to pay 25. The halakha that we're talking about over here applies only at the time of the Beit HaMikdash. It applies to male and female alike. And the rules are like this. If the person benefited b'mezid, well, we didn't talk about mezid today, but if he does it on purpose, he gets lashes, and he just has to pay principal. However, if he did it b'shogeg, then it's considered me'ilah. He has to bring a korban. He has to pay back what he benefited, and he has to add a fifth, the way we explained. Now, the chinuch leaves us with one last halakha, and we'll just explain the logic of it. Let's say a person has a safik. He doesn't know if he made me'ilah or not. In this case over here, he's exempt from bringing a korban, and he's exempt from paying. Now, why is he exempt from bringing a korban? Because if he didn't make me'ilah, you're bringing a korban to the Beit HaMikdash, which is really not consecrated, because you only have to bring a korban if you did it. And since the korban asham does not come as a nedaba, so you can't just bring it voluntarily, so therefore, if you have a sefek, no korban. But let him at least make the payment. The reason why the payment is not made is because we have a rule when it comes to monetary issues. You, Beit HaMikdash, you want to take money out of me, prove to me that I was more ill in the first place. And therefore, since he has a safek, 
We go back to the rule of Again, lesson for us today is that obviously the Torah wants us to be careful when it comes to things that are Kodesh. Although we don't have actual Ekdesh today, but we do have Sefarim Kedoshim, we have Batek and other things like that. You see the Torah's opinion is that we must treat these things with extra sensitivity and care. Baruch Rabotai, we continue our study of the Tariyag Mitzvot. And today we are up to number 128, which is the Mitzvah, positive commandment, to bring a Korban called Asham Talui. What is the case? If a person has a Safik, he's in doubt, if he transgressed a sin, what type of sin are we talking about? A sin that if he would have transgressed it on purpose, b'mezid, would be hayav karet. And therefore, if he transgressed it by mistake, it would be hayav a korban, hatat kibu'ah. And he has a doubt if he transgressed one of those sins. For example, the classic case the Hinuch gives, a person has two pieces of meat in front of him. One of them is for sure Helev. Helev is Isur Karet. And one of them is for sure Shuman, which is kosher. And he ate one of them. And the other one got lost. So he does not know if indeed he ate from the Helev or he ate from the Shuman. The Torah says in such a case that he has to bring a Korban Asham on the Safek, as the Pasuk says in Vayikra, Perek He, Pesukim Yud Zayin and Yud Chet, I'm just quoting the end of the Pasuk, V'chiper alav ha-kohen al shigigato asher shagag v'hu lo yada. The case is talking about lo yada, which means that's the Safek Asham. Now what would be the reason why a person has to bring a Korban on a sefik. It's one thing if you want to tell me he definitely transgressed in Isur. But here he doesn't even know if he transgressed it. So the Hanukh says, Adam Zahir Because a person has to be careful. And if he doesn't know if he ate Helev or not, that means he wasn't paying close enough attention to be careful from transgressing. And therefore, the reason why he has to bring the Qurban is not kapara for the sin. The proof of the pudding is, is if indeed that he finds out later on that he actually ate chalev, he has to bring a korban hatat. So why is he bringing the asham, says the chinuch, lechaper al-atsluto, to atone for his laziness, or his carelessness. How did you know what you ate? How do you put something in your mouth and you don't pay attention? And therefore... In order to teach a person to be more careful and aware, comes the Qurban Asham. Now, we want to give just a few of the laws that apply as the Hinuch brings them down. The law is that one brings a Qurban Asham Talui only when he knows for sure there was an Isur over there. Like the case I gave you, he knows for sure there was Helev there and Shuman. That's called an Isur Kavua. I'll give you another example of Isur Kavua. Let's say you had a married lady 
everybody knew she was married. That wasn't the question. But the sefek was, did she get divorced? And the person went with that lady. And there's a sefek if she's megureshet or not. So until you find out what her status is, that's called sefek eshet ish. And therefore that's a case where there's definitely a status that she was eshet ishi. There was definitely an isur. The question is, did the isur go off? Was she divorced? Therefore that's a classic case where you'd have to bring a asham talui. As opposed to, let's say, a person went with a lady that's sefek mekudeshet. Now sefek mekudeshet, we don't know if she was even ever married. Because the status of a regular woman is that she's not married. She's behaskat pinuyah. So you don't even know if there's an isur here in the first place. By the Megureshit, you know for sure there's an Isud. There was an Isud of Eshet Ish here at one point. But on Safik Megureshit, there might not even be an Isud here in the first place. So therefore, since there's no Isud Kavua, there is no Asham Talui. Of course, this law applies only at the time of the Bet HaMikdash. Applies to male and female alike. If somebody was in the Safik and did not bring an Asham Talui, he has transgressed a positive commandment. At this point, it's Kedai to bring in the famous Mahloket. There's a general rule that says, and everybody agrees to this, Safek de Oraita Lehumra. That if a person has a Safek on a de Oraita law, he has to treat it in the more strict way. Now, everybody agrees to that principle. The question is, who made up that principle? Did the Torah make up that principle? Or is it a rabbinic principle? Maimonides Harambam in Ilchotum Atmet, Perek Tet Bet, says clearly, Safek, the Oraita, the Humra, Midrabanan. It's the rabbis that made it. Minat Torah, Safek, the Oraita, Mutar. The Torah only forbade. Vadais. They were not Oser Safex. The rabbis came along and said, You have to be Mahmir on the Oraita. So they all asked the question on Shitat Rambam from Asham Talui. You see over here that the guy's Misupak if he ate Khalev, and the Torah is telling you have a Safek if you did it the Oraita, you gotta bring a Qurban. So doesn't that show you Safek the Oraita, Lehumra, Torah? That's the question they ask against Harambam. The Kesef Mishneh says a big chidush. He says he found in an old Ktav Yad of the Rambam, an old manuscript, where Harambam answers the question. And he says, yes, I did tell you Safek the Oraita Lechumra is only the Rabbanan, except when the Deoraita is punishable by karet, I will agree that if it's a karet item like Halev, then the Torah clearly wants you to be strict as proven by the Asham Talui. That would be the Halev case or the Eshel Ish case. So Harambam qualified his rule. Safek Deoraita lechumna midrabanan bishar isurim. Aval isur karet, even the Rambam with Modes says the Kesef, and the lesson of this law doesn't apply today, Hashem Talui, the inyan of being aware of what you're doing. They once asked the great Ka'on of Yudah Ades, 
living be well, Rosh Hashivat called Yaakov. And they asked him, who's worse? A person that forgets Ya'alev Yavor on Rosh Chodesh, or a person is safek if he forgot Ya'alev Yavor. And his answer was, if he forgot it, he's better. Why? Because if he forgot it, at least he knows what he did. But the guy said, means he was sleeping during the Amidah, he doesn't even know if he said it or not. It's okay to forget, people forget, but at least he knows where he stands. That means his, his, his brain is working. However, to not even know what you did, that means you weren't even cognizant at the time that you prayed the Amidah. And that's the Torah telling you over here. When a person sits down to eat, and then he finishes, then he wakes up and says, hey, was that Halev or was that Shuman? So that's, hey, that was careless. And for the carelessness, for the Atzlut, he has to bring a Korban Asham Talui. Baruch Okay, Rabotai, we're continuing the study of the Tariyag Mitzvot. And today we're up to Mitzvah 129. And that is the Mitzvah to bring a Korban called Asham Vadai. Now, in order to understand this Korban, we need to give an introduction that there are five different types of Asham Vadais. We will go through the five of them and give a quick explanation of them. They are mentioned every morning in the Mishnah and Zevahim that we read, Ezio Mekoman. So the first one is called Asham Gezelot. Asham Gezelot, as it sounds like, is somebody that is holding money of a Yisrael unlawfully in his possession. For example, either he stole the money or let's say he took a collateral and then denied that he has it. And he swore falsely about it. So when he decides to make the shuvah, of course he has to return the stolen item, but it's not enough to return it. He must bring a korban in order to atone for the theft. That korban is called asham vadai. As it says in the pasuk, nefesh ki ma'ala ma'al That is in vayikra he pasuk chaf alif. And the hadush over here is that this asham comes not only if it was done bishogeg unintentionally, but even if it was done b'mezid, intentionally, which is interesting to note that sometimes we actually bring a korban for an uh, intentional transgression. So that's called asham gezelot. Then you have asham me'ilot. That is the asham, for example, if somebody benefited from hegdesh. That's like a form of theft. And this asham is brought, not only has to reparate, he has to pay a homish, meaning an extra fifth to the temple, but he also has to bring a korban asham. Of course, this is only brought when he does it bishogeg. After all, me'ilah is only committed bishogeg. And then you have asham nazir. That's the nazir that became tameh. Whether he became tameh on purpose, or whether he became tameh bishogeg, when he starts his process, he needs to bring a korban asham, asham nazir. Then you have asham misorah, that is the leper. And after he finishes his process of purification, he has to bring a korban asham. That's nothing to do, nothing to do with shogegu mezid, it's just that he brings it after the process is over. And the last one, which for whatever reason, the Sefer HaKinuch gives the longest uh, uh, interpretation to this, is the Asham Shifha Harufa. Now, since this is complicated a little, I'll try to simplify the case. We're talking about over here a Shifha Kena'anit, a Kena'anit maidservant. And the case is not where she's a full maidservant, 
the case of the Torah is talking about where she's half slave, half free. Now, uh, how is that? For example, let's say her master freed her only half part and did not free her fully. Okay, so part of her is called batronin. Now, the batronin part of her is able to get married because the part of her is free. She can marry a regular Israel. After all, half of her is free, but half of her is not. Now, let's say Israel goes to that quasi Shifra Kananit and marries her. Well, it's a Kiddushin and it's not a Kiddushin because the Kiddushin can only land in half of the part of the lady that is free. Well, the story is not over. Now what happened, let's say somebody now went with that marriage of Hakan Anit. Now normally when you go with a married lady that's called Eshet Ish and that's called Noef and that's considered Hayav Mita. But this case over here, since it's a quasi Kiddushin, so the Torah says, if a person went with a Shifha Harufa, Odpam, Shifha Harufa means a Shifha that is Mikudeshet partially to another man. And therefore, why partially? Because she's half and half. So the law in that case is whether he went with her, Meshogeg or Mezid, there's no Hayuv Mita of adultery in this case. He's Hayab to bring a Korban Asham. Now, the reason is because it's quasi. It's not a regular case of adultery. And the Hadush Ovir is that even if he does it b'mezid, it'll be enough to atone with the Qurban. The Hanukh rationalizes it because he says, Isha People think that's ah, a shifha, it's not asud. So they don't really think they're transgressing anything that's major. And therefore, Bori Olam looks at the intention of the person. Like the Hanukh writes, that when a person's transgressing, if he really doesn't think he's doing something major, so therefore it's not considered such a, uh, 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 you know, intentional sin to anger God, even though he did it by mezid. But he really doesn't think that he's doing something wrong. After all, she's a shifcha. So therefore, uh, he can bring a, he must bring a korban asham. So let's review. You have asham gezelot, asham me'ilot, asham nazir, asham mesora, and asham shifcha harufa. Now, what's the shortish of this mitzvah? So he explains at least the first one, the Asham Gezelot. And he says, we don't want people stealing all day long and saying, well, I'll steal and then I'll return it when I have the money. After all, the Torah allows me to return the money. Torah says you could fix it. The Torah wants to say, no, don't think that you could return the money. You're off the hook. You have to get kapara and bring a korban Asham. That shows you it's not enough to return the money. A person committed the sin... He is guilty of a major crime, and therefore, it'll deter the guy from using that faulty rationalization. Finally, this mitzvah of Asham Badai is no heget, bizman abai, at the time of the temple, applies to male and female alike. The Oved, if a person transgresses and does not bring, for example, Asham Gezelot, although he returned the money, so here it's interesting, the Hanuk's language is, Yesh Amin. We have to believe she'en on kasher that we have to say that his punishment is not going to be so severe. Because we're talking about a guy who returned the money, so therefore he returned the money he just didn't bring the asham. He's going to get punished. But you have to believe that is something mitigating the fact that he did return the money and he just he just didn't fix the sin between him and uh, God. In any event, this is the mitzvah of asham vaday. And again, the lesson over here is 
that a person shouldn't think that even though he reparated the sin between man to man, he still needs to fix the sin that he committed between man and God, because God says don't steal as well. So it's a sin between man and man and man and God, and that is reparated by the Qurban Asham. We continue our study of the Taryag Mitzvot, and we are up to Mitzvah 130, and that's the positive commandment of Hashavat Gezel, that if a person steals, the Torah says he must return the Gezelah, as it says in the Pasuk, Veheshiv et Asher Gazal, which is in Perekheh, Pasuk Chavgimal. However, there are certain times and conditions that the Gazlan does not have to return the actual item that he stole. He has to make reparations in money. And when is that? When a change, a shinui, takes place to the item. We're talking about a change over here that cannot be undone or reversed. For example, the Gemara gives a few cases. Let's say a person stole wood and he burnt the wood into ashes. So there's no more wood anymore. And you can't bring the ashes back to wood. And therefore, you return money. Or for example, he stole wool and he dyed the wool a different color. That's called a shinui she'eno hozer lebriyato. And therefore, he compensates with money. Or let's say he stole wool, the strings of wool, and he made a sweater from it. So now, it's a different item. So therefore, he has to compensate money. Now, there is a big hadush regarding this. What if a person steals less than a shaveh peruta, which is a small amount of money? Now, for sure, according to the Torah law, he's considered a gazlan even if he steals less than a Shaveh Peruta. But the question is, does he have to return it? So the Sefer Hanuk over here says, a Hidush, that if a person steals less than a Shaveh Peruta, eno betorat hishabon. It's not subject to the law of return. Why? Listen to his golden language. Lefishi Yisrael b'nei Avraham Yitzhak v'Yaakov nedivim b'nei nedivim him. The Jewish people are generous. The children of generous people. It's well known. When it comes to such an insignificant amount of money, even the poorest man in Israel, if he got stolen that small amount, automatically he forgives. And nor does he pursue it. And therefore can be assumed by the Jewish people that on a small amount of money, they're going to forego it. And therefore the deen is, one does not have to return it. Now, the law is that as long as the item is in the hands of the gazlan, of the thief, or his children, even if the owners made what's called yeush, that means let's say the owners gave up, they said, we lost it. Doesn't matter. As long as the item is still in the hands of the Gazlan, they still must make Hashava. Gemara says even further, If you stole even a peruta's worth of your friend, you have to find him even if he's at the other end of the world. 
Now, even though that's the Torah law, the Hakamim were concerned. How is a person going to spend thousands of dollars now to go try to find this uh, uh, Nigzal, the one that was stolen from, when the item itself is not even worth that? So what's going to end up happening? The people are going to say, yeah, we're not going to make the Shuvah. We can't fix this Avon, and they're going to get stuck. So the rabbis came along and they made a Takana. What was the Takana? That you can go to the local Bedin, and you give the money to the Bedin, and you say, this is stolen money, and it belongs to Mr. Peloni, wherever he is, and he can come now and pick it up from the Bedin. Finally, Nachamim made a Takana, that if the item that was stolen went up in price, it appreciated. Who gets to keep the appreciation? The Gemara says the Takana was, the appreciation goes to the Gazlan. But that's only talking about an appreciation from the actual animal itself. For example, it grows wool. Or let's say it gives birth to children. However, an appreciation where the price of the animals went up, that's not from the animal, that's from the market. That goes and has to be returned to the Nigzal. This Lord Abotai has one more ramification, which is Kedai, to discuss momentarily. There's a law that says, if a person has a vacant apartment, and you have what we call a squatter. A squatter means, he sees there's nobody living in there, he says, you know what, why not? He breaks through the window, or he doesn't break anything. He climbs through the window, doesn't break anything. He lives there. All of a sudden, the owner comes along and finds out that this guy was living in his house for two months. Is that considered a gazlan? Does he have to pay? So the Gemara says, a real rabbinical answer, it depends. What does it depend on? It depends on that if this apartment is normally rented or not. But let's say there was no rental for this apartment. So therefore, we have a famous rule that says, which means this guy's benefiting but it didn't cost you anything you didn't lose out it's not as if he used your electricity or your water or he didn't ruin anything what's the difference if the guy's living there did you lose any money were you able to rent it out anywhere you weren't so you weren't getting rent so what do you care if the guy was living there the Gemara says on the contrary he did you a favor because a vacant apartment is not as beneficial, a, a, a apartment that's vacant is detrimental. Because things break, people are not living there, the shedim come, the bazikim come. When a guy's living in an apartment, it's habitated, it's, it's, it's much better. So you can't ask him, he can't ask the, uh, the landlord that he wants money for being a squatter. But nonetheless, however, if let's say he normally rents it out, and now because you got this guy in there, he can't rent it out, then already he's considered a gazlan. Because that's the case of You're causing the landlord a loss. Of course, it sounds like a strange halakha. What do you mean? People can just go jump into people's houses and live there for nothing? Again, we're not living in Sedom here, Rabotai. What do you care for the guy to have a, a house if, it, if it's not costing you any money? But again, usually in these cases, it does cost you money because he's using electricity and he's using your water and he's going to you know, wear and tear of the house. So that's why it needs to be uh, uh, taken to a betin. Last but not least, this mitzvah of Heshiva uh, de Gizla applies in all places, at all times. It applies to male and female alike. Ve'ovel aleha. 
if a person transgresses, velo heshiv et gezela, he did not return the gezela. So over here, the Sefer Ha'inuch in a classic line says that what? Besides the fact he made the sin of stealing, but now he makes an additional sin that he didn't fix it because he could have returned it. And he says like this, Besides the fact that he transgressed the sin at the time that he stole, but now he comes along and says, Woe to this guy. He says, this guy had a chance to fix the sin. And he doesn't. And the rabbi gives Musab that woe to a person that has a chance to rectify his wrong deeds. And he doesn't do that before he passes away. This is a lesson not only by Veshiv and the Gezerah, but this is a lesson by all the Averot. We have a tikkun for Averot. It's called Teshuvah. And therefore the Rav says, it's a bigger crime that if God gave you a fix and you didn't take advantage of the fix, oy lo, shelo tiken et ha-me'uvat ve'eno metakeno lefne moto. Baruch Adonai, Amen. Amen.